Our subject tonight is one of the most remarkable and prolific, impactful writers and thinkers and geniuses and teachers in Jewish history. He lived a really short, a really tumultuous, a really chaotic life. And though he faced incredible resistance and persecution, he produced a veritable library of books on diverse domains of Torah, and he forever changed the face of Jewish learning, of Jewish life, and certainly of Jewish philosophy. Uh, his, his books became so essential that they became the standard bearers of their respective subjects. Uh, you could argue that uh, our subject tonight indeed uh, eclipses the great Jewish philosophers that preceded him, and he became the final word of Jewish philosophy. Uh, this is a man who was largely unappreciated, uh, unrecognized, and unrenowned in his lifetime, but his impact has grown exponentially since his passing, and we are talking about Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, known by his acronym Ramchal. Uh, when I was researching the subject, I was under the impression that I kind of knew everything there is to know, and I learned a great deal. So I, 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 this should be very interesting. Now, he was born in Padua, in the ghetto of Padua in Italy, in uh, kind of on the coast in the north part of Italy, uh, in 1707, uh, to a famous Italian Jewish family known as the Luzzatos. They had originally come from Germany. Uh, up to bar mitzvah, his father hired private teachers to study with him. Uh, after he was bar mitzvah, after he was 13, he joined the yeshiva in Padua, headed by Rabbi Yehuda Mintz. Uh, it's important to note for his story, and we'll see why later, at, in, in 1715, so when the Ramchal is eight years old, Rabbi Yeshaya Basan, he became the rabbi of Padua, and he became the Ramchal's teacher and mentor. And he actually left Padua when Ramchal was 15. He's only there for eight years. But they maintained a really close relationship and correspondence, and that's going to be vital for the continuation of the story. Now, Padua was a home, or and still is indeed today, of a great university. The Padua University was actually founded in the 13th century, I think 1222. It's an ancient university, and it's one of the few at the time that didn't have very strict quotas on Jewish students. So there was a huge influx of students, especially medical students, from all over Europe that were interested in pursuing a general education. They would go to Padua, and Ramchal got himself involved in a, in a society, we'll see a little bit later on, of young Jewish teens who were tremendous Torah styles and very diligent in their studies and their learning. Now, in keeping with the great uh, Jewish-Italian tradition or Italian-Jewish tradition, Ramchal himself received a very rigorous, uh, well-balanced, well-rounded Jewish and uh, general education, general studies, uh, though uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that he himself attended the university. Uh, but from a great young age, he displays uncommon, uh, prodigious diligence in Torah study and genius. Uh, one of his students, one of his primary students, is a Polish medical student who came to study in Padua. His name is Yikutiel Gordon. Uh, we'll see more about him in a little bit. He writes in a letter 
one of the critical letters that really altered and shifted the Ramchal's life, that before age of 14, Ramchal already knew the entirety of the writings of the Arizal, of course, the preeminent Kabbalist of the 16th century, by heart. Now, just for reference, today, the writings of the Arizal, the Kisfer Arizal, are published in uh, 15 volumes. At the age of, 15, at the age of 14, Ramchal already knew that uh, by heart. And we see he begins very early on, uh, as a teenager, he already begins writing books at a dizzying pace. Uh, for example, at the age of 16, uh, he writes uh, essentially a play. It's called Ma'aseh Shimshon, and it's the story of Shimshon, but it's written with all these Im- embedded, these deep Kabbalistic ideas. At the age of 17, he writes Lashon Limudim. It's a book on grammar and writing. At the age of 19, uh, he's already a star scholar, and he receives rabbinic ordination, which is very, very early. Um, at 20, listen to his accomplishments in the literary field at 20. He writes a book of Psalms. And the question is, we already have a book of Psalms as part of the Bible. It's 150 chapters. But he wrote his own book of Psalms. Now, unfortunately, like many of his writings, uh, this book, we don't have it. It was either burned or was buried or was hidden. It's unknown today yet. Today, uh, the past couple of generations, they've been discovering and publishing enormous amounts of Ramchal's manuscripts they find in universities and such. So who knows, maybe we will once, uh, uh, we will yet again find a copy of this a book of the Tehillim, the Psalms of Ramchal, who knows. At the age of 20, he writes another book called Migdal Oz, a third book, Hanukkah Sa'aron. This pattern will continue the rest of his life, just writing at enormous uh, rates that are un- uncommon. You know, think of someone who was a teenager and is already writing uh, dozens of books. Uh, he's going to end up writing hundreds of volumes, uh, which is astonishing in its own right, but given the fact that he died at the age of 39 and the chaotic life that he lived, it's unimaginable beyond what we can fathom. At the age of 17, he joined a society called Mevachshe Hashem, Seekers of God. This is a group of young, committed scholars who vowed to do nothing besides for studying Torah and primarily studying the Torah of Kabbalah, studying the hidden Torah. Now, what's also important to note is they were not only studying what's known as theoretical Kabbalah, they were actually engaging in practical Kabbalah. Now, what does that mean? A Kabbalah, of course, is the mysticism or the hidden parts of Torah. The word Kabbalah actually literally means acceptance because it's the one part of the oral Torah that is still transmitted orally, teacher to student, and unless you accept it from your teacher, you don't have uh, the Torah. You may be able to read it, but it's all hidden within within it. Someone can read the Zohar, not know what they're talking about, and they're not actually studying Kabbalah unless they receive it from their teacher. Ramchal already at a very early age is studying Kabbalah with his great uh, teachers, but he's going a step further, and he's actually applying it to life. So we could study the theory, right? Kabbalah today, um, that you encounter, it's in all likelihood going to be theoretical Kabbalah. You could talk about the mystical ideas of, of nature, the nature of the soul, the five parts of the soul, the inner workings of the universe. Uh, that is almost akin to a map of the spiritual world. 
when we talk about practical Kabbalah, applied Kabbalah, it's not just learning the map of Kabbalah, it's actually taking a stroll in the neighborhood of Kabbalah. So for example, just to show you that this is not a new thing that was invented in recent times, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin on page 65b uh, just plainly states, Rava bara gavra, which means Rava created a human. Now, did he do that? Of course, the sources say he used a book of Kabbalah called Sefer Yitzira, which if you and I would read, it's total gibberish. But it's, the, it's, so to speak, it's God's book of how he created the world, so to speak. Rava read the book, and he actually created a human. We would call that a golem. And he sends this human to Rav Zera, one of his colleagues, and he starts, Rav Zera sees this strange-looking human, he starts asking him a question, the guy's quiet. And he realizes that uh, he was sent by one of his friends, one of his colleagues, and he tells him, go back, uh, you're not made by God, you're made by a human, go back to dust. And the very next Gemara tells about Rav Hanin and Rav Oshia, uh, these are rabbis from the Talmudic era. Every era of Shabbos, what would they do every Friday afternoon? Well, what would they study? Well, they'd study Sefer Yitzira, the book of Yitzira. And what would they do? They'd create a small calf, a small cow. And they'd slaughter and eat it for Shabbos. So if their wife would ask, well, what are we eating? they said, don't worry, I got this. I got you covered. And they'd just go to the, and they'd go and they'd do it. And of course, we, we don't know how that's possible to happen. But that's an example of practical Kabbalah. A Talmud, famous Talmud in the book of Chadiga, on page 14b, tells about the four great rabbis, Nichnesula Pardis. Four scholars walked into the Pardis. Pardis means the orchard, but it's a hint for the uh, practical Kabbalah. And uh, Maimonides, for example, in the end of chapter 4 of Yesodia Torah, when he talks about the theology, he says, first you fill your belly with meat and potatoes. Torah, learn the Gemara. Once you've done that, you can come thinking about taking a stroll in the Pardis, in the orchard. But there's other kind of lower levels, more simpler levels of practical Kabbalah, like dream requests. If someone has a, uh, a burning question and they do certain things and say certain things, uh, and they think about that question, prepare themselves and go to sleep, someone who's holding at the, the, the level to actually actualize this will have something come to him in his dream to give him the answer. Goral, at the Goral Agra, a lottery. It's using Kabbalah to try to, if you're, if you're, if you're dumbstruck, you don't know what to do, you use the Goral. A Kameos, very famous, amulets. Even today, you have the uh, Kabbalists, which as an aside, I want to note that many, if, if not even most, of the Kabbalists, quote-unquote, that are there today, these self-proclaimed gurus are charlatans. And I'd advise you to avoid, avoid them uh, and don't get caught up with that shtick. You know, the verse tells us, Tamim be tamim, be pure. Don't try to go and find shortcuts to greatness or easy answers. Either way, Ramchal and his society begin to dabble in practical Kabbalah. An example of what they would do is tikunim. Uh, it's, it's a word that's a, it's one of the key words uh, of Kabbalah. But it's about uniting various names of God, Yehudim. It's taking the Shechina and the Kuchabrichu and creating harmony. It's, it's a lot of really advanced stuff that we, we have no idea what these things even mean. But that's what he uh, started to do. Um, regarding this time, Ramchal is a teenager, remember, he wrote in a letter that 
yichud. He would do a yichud. A yichud means a unification, uh, which is a Kabbalistic activity. Uh, a unification of what? Of two of different names of God. So, for example, you have the four-letter ineffable name of God, the tetragram that we're not allowed to pronounce, and you have the way we pronounce it with the Aleph Dalid. So you see there's two names of God, each comprised of four letters, and the Yichud is when you unite them. Of course, we to us, this doesn't make any sense because we know nothing about Kabbalah, but Ramchal writes that as a teenager, he would do this every 15 minutes, so four times an hour, 100 times a day. Of course, obviously, he's very well steeped into this. And after he joins this group of people that are doing Kabbalah and learning Kabbalah at a very high and advanced level, very quickly, his greatness is evident to all of them, and they accept him as their leader. And as time goes on, he attracts a following sometimes called the Padua Circle, young Jewish men, many of them from that university, some of them somewhat newcomers to Judaism who are totally enamored by this young, dynamic genius, and they come to learn by him to be his student and to learn Kabbalah by him. In 1727, at the age of 20, Ramchal reports a visitation from a Magid, which essentially is an angel that would visit him and teach him Torah. Now, this is a letter. This is how he himself describes it in the letter that he writes to his teacher. There's actually, they, they publish, if you want to read this, they publish the letters of the Ramchal. This is letter number 15. And he writes to his teacher, I'm going to read you the letter, what happened to him in Rosh Chodesh Sivan, the first day of Sivan of 1727. Uh, Ramchal writes that I was doing a yichur. I fell asleep. When I woke up, I heard a voice that said in Aramaic, I'll read it to you just in English, to reveal the hidden, hidden secrets of God, I have descended. That's what he hears, the voice that he hears. So I was very shaken up. And then I kind of got, got my, gathered my bearings and the voice didn't stop. And it started telling me secrets of Torah. And the next day, I tried to be myself in the room, and again, the voice spoke and told me another secret. And eventually, this voice told me that, I'm a, that the voice is a Magid, which is an angel, sent from heaven, and gave me special Yehudim, that word again, that I should have in mind, have Kavanot, Every day, whenever I think about them, he'll come. And I don't see him, but I hear his voice coming from within my mouth. And afterwards, eventually, the Magid allowed me to ask him questions. It wasn't just a one-way conversation. It was a a two-way conversation. After three months, he gave me more tikkunim to do every day in order that I should merit to have Elijah the prophet come to me. And then he instructed me to write a book on Sefer Kohalas, on the book of on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he will explain to me the secrets behind each verse. And afterwards, Elijah the prophet came to me and he told me more secrets of Torah. And then he says that Matat, which is another angel, is also going to come. And Indeed, he came. 
And from then on, uh, I have souls coming to me and all these things happening when I fall on my face and I see all these souls and they appear to me in a dream like people. This is an actual letter that the Ramchal writes uh, when he's 23 to his Rebbe, to his teacher. And indeed, there's an enormous amount of literature that Ramchal actually wrote as a very young man based upon the teachings of the Magid. So, for example, he himself writes that the book that he had on Kohelos, which is the equivalent of a Zohar, a Kabbalistic commentary on Kohelos, he writes that it was a thousand pages of very small writing. A huge book. Uh, he wrote another book of Tikkunim, that's a hundred pages. Uh, commentaries in the Torah, a new Zohar. A new Zohar. The Zohar of Rabbi Shimon Baichai is not enough. We got a new one. Seventy Tikkunim on the last verse of the Torah. So if you ever perchance heard the term Tikkune Zohar, that is a book that is written 70 Kabbalistic interpretations of the first verse of the Torah. Ramchal, as in his 20s, wrote another Tikkunim, 70 explanations of the last verse of the Torah. Uh, and indeed, he even writes that he had three separate books on the Parsha, on the section of Vayetze, which is the, uh, I think it's the seventh Parsha, seventh section of Genesis. Now, uh, obviously, we're reading sounds like total, we never heard anything like this, right? Uh, the Ramchal's 20, 21, 22 years old, and this is what he's having an angel visiting. It's like, it's not, it's not from our world. And at the time, there's only a small circle of his students and a few of his teachers that are aware of any of this. Uh, but when he's 23, the word gets out. The aforementioned medical student, Yekutil Gordon, he writes a letter and he sends it to various places in Europe. And everyone's trying, all the historians trying to figure out what was the motivation behind the letter, who told him to write the letter. Uh, but the letter created a, an uproar. Uh, an example, something he writes in the letter, you could still read the letter. For example, the letter he casually mentions that Ramchal is a reincarnation of Rabbi Akiva, which sounds strange. Ramchal is coming, you know, 1,700 years, or 1,600 years after Rabbi Akiva died. Why is he a reincarnation of Rabbi Akiva? But in hindsight, the, there's parts of the story that happened afterwards. We know Ramchal died when he was just about 40. Rabbi Akiva, well, he didn't study Torah until he was 40. So there have been those that have suggested, well, actually kind of makes sense. It dovetails nicely because Rabbi Kiva, maybe his soul was lacking that there was 40 or 40 year gap, 40 years of life that he wasn't studying Torah. And Ramchal did his 40 years and he kind of made sure that Rabbi Kiva had everything covered. But moreover, where is Ramchal buried? In kind of the strange quirk of irony, if you don't believe in this reincarnation, Ramchal is actually buried in Tiberias right next to Rabbi Akiva. And it's, it's surprising that someone who's 1,600 years later, normally uh, graveyards, cemeteries, where places where people are buried, they're broken down into eras, time periods. And there's ancient cemeteries and there's newer cemeteries. Somehow, Ramchal is buried right next to Rabbi Akiva, which does lend some credence to this theory. Uh, now, his student also provides a very vivid description of this Magid. And he writes, this angel 
is speaking out of his mouth, out of Ramchal's mouth. But us, the students, we don't hear anything. And the angel begins to reveal him the hidden secrets. And then he tells Elijah to come. And Elijah reveals secrets. And then other angels come. And Mashiach comes. And Adam comes. And Abraham comes. And Moshe comes. Uh, Obviously, people that never met Ramchal, and you hear about this, a 23-year-old person doing these kinds of things, or at least claim to do these kinds of things, a lot of alarm bells go off once this letter uh, becomes public. Now, what's interesting, the uh, this student actually became a great rabbi. He eventually, he was following Ramchal along in, in his journey, but eventually he moved back to Poland and back to Lithuania, and he was instrumental in clearing Ramchal's name. For example, it's likely we know that the Don of Vilna, the greatest personality of the 18th century, he got hold of one of the writings of Ramchal and read it, and he was enormously impressed. We'll talk about that when we talk about that book. But it's likely that this student, he was the one who delivered this book to the Gona Vilna that eventually helped clear his name. Now, the revelation that Ramchal was studying and engaging in practical Kabbalah and claiming the visitations of a Magid, it caused an enormous controversy to erupt. And essentially, for the rest of Ramchal's life, he was doggedly persecuted uh, as a result. So let's give a little bit of the background to, to understand why. It's, you know, it doesn't look good for us in hindsight as a nation that someone as great as Ramchal, and he's been vindicated by ev- everyone's vindicated him. No, no one has any questions upon him right now. But someone like Ramchal was, was persecuted in his time. So I think it's important to understand the background. In the 17th century, it's one of a really sad century uh, for the Jewish people. Right in the middle of the century, we had uh, perhaps uh, one of the worst holocausts that have befell our nation. I know we've spoken about it in the past. The Khmelnitsky massacres. Bardan Khmelnitsky, a Ukrainian Cossack, they come and they start slaughtering entire villages in the most horrific, gruesome, and brutal way. You read the macabre descriptions and, and, and you kind of lose your breath. Unmatched cruelty. And you think about what, what's, what, is, what does a nation do? How do you rebuild? How do you forge ahead? And we know a mere 15 years after the Chmelnitsky massacres was the Shabtai Tzvi debacle. So it was almost like a double whammy. You know, we know, just to kind of take it to our century, uh, the Holocaust and how much it affected Jewish life. But what happened after the Holocaust? The Jewish people were in the depths of despair, but we rebuilt and three years after the Holocaust, there's the state of Israel, and the yeshivas begin to sprout up left, right, and center, and yeshiva students and Torah and all that begins to flourish again. It's hard for us to think, you know, growing up in the shadows of the Holocaust, what life would have been like if we had a physical Holocaust followed by a spiritual disaster? Think about how it would have changed the Jewish attitude going forward. There was uh, indeed a movement that resulted from Shabtai Tzvi, the Sabbateans. And these were people that were involved in Kabbalah, and many of them have been, were great scholars, 
but we're heretics and we're heathens and we're followers of a false messiah. But we're living and observing that all clandestinely. So there were efforts by great rabbis to root out any of these uh, any of these parts, any of these aspects, these rotten elements from our nation. And Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, the rabbi, is born in Jerusalem, but made his rounds in Europe. Uh, he was someone who was a, a Sabbatean hunter. And anything that smelled at a hint of Sabbateanism, they would attack it ferociously. And he was worried. He hears about this young, brilliant, charismatic, handsome, inspiring young man who's teaching, delving into Kabbalah, claims to have visitations of a Magid. And this sounds a lot like another Shabtai Tzvi or another concern. He was very worried. And then he investigates and he finds that that uh, Ramchal doesn't have a very big beard. He trims his beard. Others say he maybe even shaved in Italian tradition. Maybe he didn't have such a good full facial hair. He asked if he goes to the mikvah every day. He said, no. What's going on? Is this real holiness or is this more frauds? And eventually they call Ramchal to court and they start hounding him and pursuing him and writing bans against him. And attacking him and his followers. And this controversy continues for several years. And they eventually call his old teacher, Rabbi Yishaya Basan. And he comes and he testifies that Ramchal is really a huge tzaddik and he's legit. But regardless, ultimately, Ramchal is forced to sign that he's not going to teach or write in Kabbalah. And... He has to take all his writings that he did till, t- uh, until then. And they raided his house and they found all the writings that he had from the market. And they put it in a box and they locked the box and they gave the key in the box to his teacher. And he lost an enormous amount of, of writings. No one knows what happened to those writings. There are claims, there are allegations that some of the more zealous uh, elements of the opposition to Ramchal actually found that box and burnt it, which would explain why we don't have a lot of these works. Regardless, Ramchal reneged upon his agreement because he said, well, this is an agreement that was reached upon uh, under duress, and therefore it's not binding. But when we look at that time period in history, those four years where this huge controversy was taking over Europe, and look a little bit at the output the literary output of Ramchal, and it's really overwhelming. I'm going to read to you just a partial list of known works that Ramchal wrote during those four years of 1730 to 1734. Ramchal's 23 to 27. I'm going to run through these names in Hebrew. Some of the names, if you're familiar with the writings of Ramchal, may sound familiar, others may not. This is what he wrote in four years while being hounded Relentlessly. Maimer Hagaula, Mishne Elyon, Maimer Hanavua, 
Ma'amar Shem Membeis. There's a 42-letter name of God. He wrote a book on it. Ma'amar Shem, Ma'amar Merkava, Ma'amar Chachma, Ma'amar Adin. Ein Yisrael, Tfilos Noros, Mechamas Hashem, Kenes Hashem Zvakros, Pirush al Otsros Chaim, Pirush al Seros Adibros, commentary on the Ten Commandments, Pirush al Tichonu Zohar, commentary on the Tichonu Zohar, Nimutri Machser, Tolim Shniim, Pirush al Aderes Rabba, Maimar Sabi de Beatuna, Idros Pischei Chachma Vadas, Sifrei Dinim, Tov Kruf Tesvav Tfilos, which is a book of 515 prayers, Kitzer Akavanos, Maimar Havikuach, which is the, the treatise of, of disputation, which is a, a dramatic dialogue between a researcher and a, and a Kabbalist. Klach Pischei Chachma, the 138 openings of wisdom. Klolos Ha'ilan Klolom, Das Tvunos, Pirish Rabba. Those are the books that Ramchal wrote uh, in four years. Think about it. staggering, overwhelming, voluminous, prolific scholarship in four years, in his 20s, while being hounded relentlessly. And some of those books, by the way, are absolute classics of their genre. So, for example, let's look, talk about two of them. Klach Pischei Chachma. Klach is the gematria, Kuf, Lamed, and Ches. That's 138. This is a summary. It's like a digest of all the Kabbalah of the Arizal in 138 paragraphs. And this is essentially, it's the essential primer on Kabbalah, for one. Das Tvunos. What's the Das Tvunos? Perhaps you've heard that, uh, that book. It's a dialogue. Again, he would write very often, a very gifted writer, as, a, as an aside. But he would write very frequently in the form of a dialogue. So we have, for example, we mentioned earlier, there's the dialogue between the researcher and the Kabbalist. This is the dialogue between the Seichel and the Neshama, the intellect and the soul. And these two sides, these two forces, the spiritual and the rational sides are kind of feeling each other out and eventually start tackling various critical aspects of Jewish faith. Uh, My grandfather, for example, who was an expert on books of Kabbalah and Jewish thought, he wrote, uh, Hasefer HaKadosh Hazeh, this holy book, Manhig Dorenu Bemuna. This is the guide to Amuna of our generation. Kefi, just like Shamesilat Yesharim, he Manhigenu Bemusar. Just like the Mesilat Yesharim, the path of the just, another work of the Romchal, is our guide in Musar. This book, the Das Tfunos, is our guide in Amuna. I want to read to you a little snippet from the Das Tfunos. The Neshama is trying to figure out We know that man is a fusion of body and soul. And the Neshama is asking why man could have been just one thing. Uh, Why does he have to be an amalgamation of two opposing things? Of course, God could have done it. So why did God choose to do it this way? That's a good question. So the Seichel responds, and he begins with the ultimate goal, because there's the ultimate goal, and there's how you get there. And sometimes Ramchal was very logical, and it would always look at the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate goal. Uh, because I like to give this example, even though it's very mundane. But what's the goal of the football game? Someone might say, well, to score touchdowns. Or someone else might say, well, to... Uh, to move the ball down the field, right? 
to matriculate the ball down the field. Others might say, well, to have good plays. And some others might say, well, to win the game. But the ultimate goal is to win the championship. Maybe the ultimate goal is even to build a dynasty. You know, it's a, it's a bad example. But the Ramchal always begins with very logical, very structured. Start from the end, end, end goal. What's the end, end goal? That the Almighty should do good to us. We should have pleasure. We should have Olam That's the end, end goal. That through our actions, to the degree that a person perfects themselves and achieves uh, completion, that's how much reward they're going to get. Uh, but because a person needs to achieve completion, well, that implies that they are imperfect. So there is imperfection that needs to be overcome. And what's that? That's the goof. That's the body. Because the body is physical. It's material. It, it's not worthy at all of having godly light. Well, that's why we know the body doesn't have olamaba, or it, okay, put that thought aside, but the body's put on the ground, that we know for sure, right? And therefore, the body is not, it's not supposed to be there where someone gets the ultimate reward for God. For God. And that's this darkness that is baked in. It's a law that, that, that the, the, the body has to be an entity that is consumed by lustful pleasures that dominate it. And on one hand. On the other hand, there is the pure soul. Well, the soul is chatsuva, it's hewn from under the kisiyah cover, the chair of God, the throne of God. And the soul was brought down from the highest places and blown into the body in order to purify it and to make the body holy. So he's describing there's this tension. The body is very physical, the soul is very spiritual, and the objective is to use the soul to purify the body. And you should know, he continues, that the end objective of the soul coming into the body is not that it should live in this life, and this orientation, but the ultimate goal is lizakek oso zikuk mamish. To purify it with a real purification. To ascend it, to bring it up, to uplift it from its low physical level. And and darkened one. The objective is that the soul uplifts the body so that the person can become like an angel. We found this with Moshe that he purified and cleansed his physicality until he actually returned to becoming the level of an angel. And all the people, they saw his face, and his face, they couldn't look at it. His face was glowing. But the way to do that, how does the soul purify the body? That's with mitzvahs and with Torah. Kiner mitzvah a Torah, or because the mitzvah is a candle, and Torah is light. And every to the degree that someone adds Torah and adds mitzvos, they add purification to their body, and the result is that you can fulfill the will of God to have that reward. That's a powerful statement, and we get, we know that thanks to the Ramchal in Das Tevunos, the foundational book of Amuna for our generation. Now, due to the raging, hounding and continuous criticism and bans and all the adversity, Ramchal decided in 1735, at the age of 28, 
to move to Amsterdam. Amsterdam was known as being more tolerant, more liberal, and he figured freed from the clutches of the radical zealotry, he would be free to continue his learning and his work without molestation. So he had his manuscripts that he had shipped to Amsterdam, but the zealots got hold of the shipment and they sequestered them. So along the way, he's traveling from Italy to Amsterdam to Holland, and he has to stop off in Frankfurt to try to speak to the court to get back his writings from the mob that intercepted them. And once again, his rabbi has to come to defend him, and the court turns against him. And he has to, he has to turn off all his writings. It's confiscated. And again, it's perhaps it's buried, perhaps it's burned. A lot of it is gone. Finally, Ramchal arrives in Holland, which was more conducive to writing. Many of his followers, they come with him as well. And quickly, he becomes recognized as the greatest Torah leader of the, of the locale. He has the yeshiva and continues his voluminous writing. Two of the books that he wrote in Holland, in Amsterdam, became absolute classics of the Jewish library, Derech Hashem, The Way of God, and Masil Hisharm, The Path of the Just. Now they just recently reprinted it, The Way of the Upright. Now Derech Hashem, it answers the questions of Jewish faith in one volume. It talks about theology, what is the soul, what's the man, what's the purpose of man. It ponders the questions of theodicy, of righteous suffering, wicked flourish. And what it does is it takes, like Ramchal masterfully does, he takes the very complex questions that the Talmud talks about in so many different ways, and it's really hard to make a digest of clarity, and he does that. And it's written with his inimitable style, methodical approaching it systematically, very clear writing, very orderly, very organized fashion, starting from the bottom up and masterfully and precisely telling you, building from there. Uh, his language is, is, is succinct. It's, it's precise. It's clear, uh, which was, of course, a hallmark of all his writing. And I think today, to get a sense of the legacy of the Derech Hashem, you read it today and the response that it yields is, yeah, of course, everyone knows that. Well, how, does, how does everyone know that? Because it became that everyone knew it because of the Derech Hashem. It became the prevailing orthodoxy of Jewish faith. It became the definitive book of Jewish theology, which is a pretty remarkable statement. And of course, in Amsterdam, he also wrote Masil Sisharim. Masil Sisharim, arguably his most important, most popular book. Uh, it is, of course, the flagship book of Musar. You look at the Musar world, and there's the classics, and you have many of the classics that precede him from the times of the Rishonim, from the medieval times. Shari Tshuva. Shari Tshuva is written in the 13th century. You have Archos uh, Tzadikim, the ways of the Tzadikim. Yerchovus Alvavos. And then and these are all written much, much earlier, in the early parts of the, uh, of the millennium. And then you come along in the 18th century, Messias Hasharman, that book joins that select group as being the foundational books of Musra. It's reprinted hundreds and hundreds of times. And of course, he begins the work with the classic statement, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. And then, of course, he proceeds to tell you things that you never knew before. 
uh, and the objective of the book, how to make yourself perfect. Step-by-step instructions how to become someone who has prophecy. So just follow the instructions and you'll get there. Pretty remarkable statement. And um, the Musser masters, they look at Masil Sasharm as being a digest of all of his writings and being a book essentially of Kabbalah that's enshrouded, it's concealed, it's clothed in a way that it's, it's understandable to all. He begins with the classic first chapter, Yesod HaChasidus V'Shorosh HaAvodah, what is the foundation of Hasidus of piety? What's the root of HaVodah HaTamim, the perfect service of God? And he begins it like he begins many other books by telling us that the ultimate objective is to have pleasure, which is an Olam And he goes on to just delineate what life really is about and how we should strive to think about that. We have life. And the most important choice we make in life is what are we living for? And he proves very beautifully with sources, with precision, that the objective is to do mitzvos, because mitzvos bring us towards this completion and that results in our accessing Olam Abana. The book itself, Masih Sasharm, is built upon a statement of Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir in the Talmud of Navodah Zara, page 20b. Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir, he's a very famous character. In the Talmud, he ap- happens to be the father-in-law of Rabbi Shun Barichai. The author of the Zohar is a son-in-law of Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir. Perhaps you know the story of his donkey, his donkey was kidnapped by non-Jews and refused to eat non-kosher food. And the Talmud sometimes talks about the fact that even the animals of Sadiqim do mitzvot more than we do. So what does Rabbi Pinchas Meyari say? He quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. You should guard yourself from any bad thing. Not to think something bad during the day that will result in a sin at night. Mikan Omar Rabbi Pinchas ben Yar. From this deduces Rabbi Pinchas ben Yar. Torah brings to Zahirus, Torah brings to caution. Zahirus brings to Zerizus, caution brings to zeal. Zeal brings to cleanliness, cleanliness brings to abstinence, abstinence brings to purity, purity brings to piety, piety brings to humility, humility brings to fear of sin, fear of sin brings to holiness, holiness brings to divine spirit, divine spirit brings to resurrection of the dead. How do we unpack that? How do we have this process, step one, step two? First of all, how does Rabbi Shemir get that from the verse? It's a great mystery to us. Starting with Torah and resulting in the ability, ostensibly, to revive dead people and to have Ruach HaTosh and to have prophecy, that's the objective of the book. I will take your hand and show you how it's done. Pretty remarkable. It's interesting that um, Ramchal actually wrote Masil Shem twice. In, the, in 1994, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they opened up the vast archives of the universities to researchers. So there's a rabbi in Cleveland who was allowed to come take photographs of a manuscript written, the handwritten manuscript of the Ramchal of Mesilas Yasharim that was written two years before the one that we have. And it's almost identical, but it's different because first of all, it's written in a format it's a conversation between a chacham and a chassid, a dialogue between 
a wise person and a pious person. And they, these two are old friends and they meet again and they have a discussion. And the Chacham, the wise person, he tells the pious person, well, what do you do all day? What are you living for? And then he starts off being kind of cocky and all proud of himself and looking down at the pious person until it really flips on its head and he starts trying to learn from him. And out of that, he pulls out the whole Messiah Hashem. Ultimately, Ramchal chose to publish it uh, just as a straight-up prose without any of the dialogue. But this was reprinted in the, in the 1999, I think it was. And it's really fascinating to see what he chose to change from the initial unpublished version that was found in the manuscript to the one that we was published and was in our hands for 200 years. And for example, my grandfather, who was asked to write a letter of recommendation of this book, given that my grandfather was the Musser leader of the generation. So if you're going to publish a new version of Masil Sharm, he's the person you're going to go to. And he writes that it's really fascinating. He must have learned Masil Sharm hundreds of times. My grandfather did. But he says it's fascinating. There's some parts of Masil Sharm that Ramchal kind of was really brief. He embraced brevity, doesn't really elaborate. And then you see with the earlier version, he gives you more detail and really fills the picture for him. If we could write a blurb on the Masil Sasharim, it would probably contain the praise of the Gon of Vilna. The Gon of Vilna, like we said, is the greatest personality of the 18th century, 1720 to 1797. Uh, he got his hands on the Masil Sasharim after the death of Ramchal, and he said two things about it. First of all, he said there's not a single extra word for the first 13 chapters. Not one extra word. As an aside, what was that extra word? We know the Gon of Vilna spent a lot of time trying to find the exact correct text of the Talmud. I've heard, I haven't seen this, but I've heard that the extra word that Ramchal writes is a word from a quotation from the Talmud that according to the Gon of Vilna's research was actually an imprecise text, and that's the extra word. That's one thing he said about that. Pretty high praise coming from the Gon of Vilna. The second thing the Gona Villa said about this book, if he was still alive, I'd walk on foot from Vilna to wherever he is to see him and to study from him. From him. This book, Masil Sasharm, remarkable uh, skill that uh, is inherent in its writing to be able to, to write in a way that there's so much layering Every subsequent rereading is like it's like peeling an onion. Every time you peel another layer, you find another layer beneath it. It, it. it could be read by a young person. It's it's complex matters, but it's written in a way that it's understandable by the layman, by the uninitiated. And then it's written in a way as well to be captivating for the most advanced scholars. This became the foundational book of Musar. The Musar masters, like we said, would study repeatedly, poring over each word and trying to draw out and glean from it nuance and insight. I want to give you an example uh, that my grandfather writes in one of his books, a, an, an analysis of a, a word, just a word or two of Mesilas Yasharim. This is the second paragraph of the first chapter. And like we said, he begins four of his books, the Derech Hashem, by noting that the purpose of creation, the ultimate purpose of creation is to have the greatest level of pleasure. 
And then he continues. What Chazal, what our sages have taught us, that man was only created to take the pleasure of Hashem and to delight in the Shechina of Hashem. And then he qualifies. For this is the true pleasure and the greatest delight of all delights that are possible to exist. And the venue, the place of this delight in truth is Olam Haba, because that was created for this. That's what Ramchal says. If you read it with a microscope, you'll notice something very powerful my grandfather points out. Remember, not a single word is extra, right? He's talking about spiritual pleasure. The objective of life is to achieve spiritual pleasure. And then he qualifies it. Look what he says. This is the real ta'anud, the real pleasure. And the greatest delight of all delights. So you'll notice, he says that it's the most real of pleasures. And it's the greatest of delights. What this essentially means, he's saying two points. He's saying that there's real pleasures and there's fate pleasures. Olam spiritual pleasures are real. They're lasting. They're not fleeting. They're not the result of external stimuli. And they don't disappear when the external cause goes away. It's real. It's not fake. And then he says it's big. It's not small. And this is the greatest idun, the greatest delight that it's the greatest degree of pleasure. And then he adds another subtlety. And the place of the this delight is in Olam Abba. So you'll notice, he says this pleasure is a tanug, it's a pleasure and it's a delight. And he says the venue for this delight is Olam Abba. Wait a minute. Where's the venue of this pleasure? It doesn't say, He qualified it two ways. It's real, not fake. It's big, it's not small. He says, The place of this big idun is Olam Abba. What he essentially is telling us, says my grandfather, that the place of the ta'anud is Olam Azeh. The place of this pleasure is indeed in this world. And my grandfather writes a whole essay based upon this point, drawing from other sources as well, that there's a certain way to capture the kind of pleasure that he's talking about in this world. Very powerful idea and really is reflective of the kind of analysis appropriate for Ramchal in general and Masil Sisharm in particular. He stays in Holland, in Amsterdam, for only eight years. In 1743, he decides to move to Israel. No one knows why for sure, but they suspect that maybe the persecution followed him to, to uh, Holland as well. Uh, he settles in northern Israel in Akko. Tragically, at the age of 39, after only three years there, 
he and his family, he had a wife and a son, die in a plague, and he is buried in Tiberias, right next to Rabbi Ativa. It's important for us to stress that the controversy has totally been quieted since his death. Everyone accepts Ramchal as one of the great towering giants of Judaism and revere his writings. Of course, all the lists of books that I talked about today are a partial listing. Uh, the, the voluminous quantity of his writings are beyond the bounds of even our most wild fant- fantasies. I want to I want to finish with, uh, I think, a, a powerful idea that Ramchal writes, uh, and he champions, and he writes that this is a life-altering activity. So I think it's uh, appropriate to take one of the lessons of Ramchal, of this great leader and writer and thinker and genius, with us, uh, take this idea with us. And this is about, it's not his idea, but the way he brings it out is really powerful. The Talmud famously tells us, it's important to take an accounting of yourself, of your character. And Ramchal writes in Masil Sisharim, the bottom line, a person needs to be misponent to contemplate in his mind always, at all times, and at a specific set time alone, what is the true way, according to the Torah, that he needs to go with. That's what he writes in in Derech Eitz Chaim, a fascinating, tiny little volume that uh, is, he writes in himself, is an introduction to the Eitz Chaim of Rab Chaim Vital. He writes as follows. Man, most of his time and most of his years, he's thinking about his dealings of the matters of a temporary life and a temporary world. Why doesn't he take to heart, even for one hour, to also think a true thought, to think about an eternal life? What are you? Why are you in this world? What does the king of kings, the Almighty, want from you? What's going to be at the end? What's your endgame? Says Ramchal, This is the greatest and strongest antidote that is possible to be created against the Yetzirah. And it's easy. And it yields tremendous dividends. That a person should stand up every day for a minimum of an hour, free of all other thoughts, to think only about this matter that I said. And he should ask and inquire in his heart, what did the first ones, the early ones, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the world, do that they might have loved them so much? Abraham is a pretty stellar character. What did he do to get there? What did Moshe do? What did King David do? And all the great people that preceded us. And you should think in his mind, how good is it to follow their path? Pretty powerful idea that he says, just, just at a minimum, an hour a day, to think about what you're actually living for. And uh, I think his point is well taken. If we live 24 hours a day investing in a temporary world, in a temporary life, in a temporary body, it doesn't seem so much to ask to invest even one hour, you know, 5% of that time in our permanent self, 
Very powerful lesson from Amchal, an amazing character, an amazing writer whose books are incredible. Many of them have been translated to English. Uh, that's from Khal, and he is the great personality. And I, um, I thank you all for listening. Uh, as always, if you have any comments or questions, RabbiWolby at gmail.com is the email. You could subscribe to the podcast, share it, rate, review. I really appreciate that.